all of our praise team for their faithfulness in singing each week and thankful to Teresa for coming this morning and playing for us. Uh, appreciate that. All right. I hope that you have had a, a good week this week. It seems like Craig and I say this to each other almost every Sunday morning. Uh, well, another week's gone and it's just like that. And it seems that's the way it is. But uh, we're glad that you're here. Good to have folks visiting with us. It's always good to have visitors in our services on Sunday. We're glad you came to be with us. Pray that you'll be blessed. Let's turn to John chapter 1 again, if you would please. For you that are visiting, we've been studying the Gospel of John. And we have, just last week, we finished the prologue of the book, which goes through verse 18. And chapter 1, verse 18. And now we're going to begin the preparation. And in this preparation, we see two things. The testimony of John the Baptist and the testimony of the disciples as to who Jesus is. Jesus, as John has told us, is very God in the flesh, revealed in human form, yet not sinful like all other men. The Apostle Paul writes of this miracle which in theological terms is called the kenosis or the the bringing together of humanity and divinity in the body of Christ. He writes this in Philippians chapter 2, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. These two sets of testimonies are found in these verses. So I'd like to read verses uh, 19 through uh, verse, I think, verse 28 this morning. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize you with water. But one among, but among you <clears throat> stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. We begin in verse 19 with the testimony of John the Baptist. In the prologue, we saw a brief excerpt of John's testimony about Christ, which is found in verses 6 through 8 and verse 15 of that chap, of that uh, section. John proclaimed that Jesus was the one that should come and take away the sin of fallen humanity. We see that in verse 29. If you look, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The time was right for Christ to be born, and now the time was right for Him to be revealed as the Messiah. No one else but John the Baptist could do this, for he was the one chosen by the Father for this very purpose. John MacArthur writes with regard to this, The ancient world had seen many great men. It had known feared war leaders like Alexander the Great, judicious lawgivers like Hammurabi, profound thinkers like Socrates, powerful rulers like Augustus Caesar, wise men like Solomon, and noble religious leaders like Abraham, Moses, David, and the judges and the prophets of Israel. But the greatest of them all was was an improbable candidate by human standards for that supreme honor. He lived his life in obscurity in the desert, far from society and the seats of power and influence. Nor was he wealthy. By the way he dressed and ate, he identified with the poor. Yet he had the most important and elevated task in history. To announce the arrival of the arrival of the Messiah. This man, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, was introduced in verse 15, where it is recorded that he confessed that Christ was greater than he. Yet Jesus pronounced him greater than any other person who had ever lived before him. <clears throat> there had been silence for 400 years. No prophet 
had spoken from God. And now the prophet of God, the last one of the Old Testament era, raised his voice to make the way for the Messiah to come. John's purpose was to focus attention on the light and the life that was in Christ alone. This is what he emphasized in the prologue. Now in this section, what we're going to see is a detailed account of John the Baptist's testimony as he answers questions to those representatives that were dispatched from the Sanhedrin. His witness is divided into two parts. First is his information. The information is given to to this undisclosed group of men and from the religious leaders. In other words, John's information. Information about him and then about Christ. (laughs) We see that going all the way through to verse 34. And then the author records the witness of the disciples of John the Baptist from verse 30, verses 35 through 41. We must keep in mind that this is not, it was not the physical appearance of John the Baptist. It was not the excitement of his preaching or the fact that he came baptizing that was the emphasis or main interest of the Apostle John in writing this. Uh, Lots of details are given about John the Baptist. But they are there for our information. They are not the main subject matter. The synoptics identify all the features about John the Baptist. (coughs) Here, John the Baptist plainly states... That what he witnessed was from divine revelation. Look look at verse 31. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, who is that? That's God the Father. He said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. So John got his information directly from heaven. It was, it was God the Father that told John who to look for and the signs that should be. And we see that dramatically played out in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Even further, we see that John was fulfilling the works of God that God had set before him, that were planned for him before the foundation of the world. Which is true of all of us that know Christ. All of us that have been saved by grace, by faith through the grace of God. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared the good works for us to do before we were ever born, before the creation of the world. It was already done. All we have to do is accomplish those works that God has planned for us. We need to look for them. They are assigned. They are prepared and prepackaged for us. I think so much of what we do is just simply our own thing. We're just doing our own thing. But those things that are ours, those our own things, from a spiritual standpoint, will be burned up in the judgment, as Paul reveals in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. But the things we do by the power of God, through the Spirit of God, those things will last forever. Jesus writes in John 15, verse 16, For Jesus said this to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go or be sent out, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The fruit of the Spirit that works in our lives today that God has prepared for us in in eternity past that we're fulfilling today will go on into eternity future. And all to the glory of Christ. John is simply, he was simply engaging in what had been set out for him. And we should do the same. Now let's take each line as we do and Unpack it and see what the Lord is saying to us here. Notice the phrase, and this is the testimony of John. Now we all know that a testimony is a very powerful thing. Even false testimonies can be powerful things. Particularly when the people who are hearing them want to believe lies. But if a, if a testimony is truthful, if it is authentic, then there is great power in it. John uses a word here, a noun, martyria, meaning a witness or a verbal testimony. This is what we see in the courts. If you've ever sat on a, in on a trial or a court proceeding and you have a jury, there's testimony given. They call witnesses to the stand and they, they, pledge themselves and swear to tell the truth. And their testimony then is taken as corroboration of fact. Indeed, if they were first-hand witnesses, this word was used in the legal sphere so as to ascertain facts. But later it became used to substitute any truth by which there was a credible eyewitness. A witness does not necessarily have to swear in in court to be telling the truth as an eyewitness. 
This is the idea that John is using when he is using this word. So it is a solemn declaration to establish first-hand facts. It also means that the content is what one speaks as a witness. It it refers to that content. The one telling what they saw. Telling what they heard. In fact, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament writes this. That the word refers not merely to the establishment of events or actual relations or facts of experience on the basis of direct personal knowledge. It signifies also the proclamation of views or truths of which the speaker is convinced. It's not just a testimony of words. It is what the speaker saw and is convinced of what he saw or heard and is convinced of what he heard. And then he is telling that. John had seen these things. He heard the father speak to him. He he saw the spirit descend. All these things John was witness of. And here he is witnessing with his lips. Later, he witnesses with his life as he is martyred because of his preaching against sin. Matthew chapter 14, verses 8 to 12. Now this word, martyria, the word for witness, became a favorite of John, the apostle, in his writings. It is used 37 times in the New Testament the majority of which are in John's writing. Fourteen times in the Gospel of John, nine times in Revelation, six times in 1 John, and once in 3 John. The word martyria is used to speak of a verbal testimony of personal belief in two other places in the New Testament. Turn to them with me, if you will. Acts chapter 22 Just going to give you a couple. There are more than this. But just to establish the use of the word with regard to personal experience and personal testimony of belief. John uses it in these, uh, these are used in these passages. Now Paul in this passage has been arrested in the temple. He is in Jerusalem and he's asked, he has asked to speak to the people in his own defense. He spoke of his conversion on the road to Damascus and then of his return to Jerusalem where the Lord had spoken to him. And this is what he says when the Lord spoke to him. The Lord said in verse 18. The Lord said, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. There's our word, marturia. Our testimony. Your testimony, the things you are absolutely sure of, Paul. The things you have heard, Paul. They're not going to believe you. You're convinced. They will not be convinced. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 
11. People of the end times, believers, overcoming through their faith. This is what it says. And they have conquered him. That's speaking of the the beast, the, the Antichrist. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That which they were convinced of in the Lord. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Now, John the Baptist made his appearance, his first appearance in the summer of the year of 26 A.D., which takes, and all this takes place over the space of three days. He came preaching, came preaching repentance and confession for the forgiveness of sin. And people thronged to hear his message and to be baptized by him. In fact, uh, such a stir arose from John's preaching and the baptisms that it got the attention of the Jews in Jerusalem. You have to understand, John is across the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, 40 miles from Jerusalem. And yet, people in Jerusalem and all over Judea are hearing about John's preaching and the baptizing he's doing at the Jordan. In fact, Mark chapter 1 verse 5 says this, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. In other words, there was a steady stream of people leaving the surrounding areas of Jerusalem and Judea and going out to where John was preaching over near Bethany across the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, and Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 17 uh, tell this whole story. This was not the sentiment of the brigade sent from the religious leaders. They didn't go out to hear John because they were interested in what he had to say or to be baptized by him. Although at one point they wanted to be baptized by him and he told them, no, you bring forth fruits that show you've repented then. Which is still the standard today, folks. Still the standard today. In fact, Luke chapter 7, Jesus' words to the people concerning John the Baptist were these. When all the people heard this, Jesus' words about John the Baptist, when he said there's no greater person that ever lived than John the Baptist, when he said that, the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. In other words, these people had been baptized by John. And they agreed with what Jesus said about John. But listen to this last line. Verse 30. 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so, these are the same people. These are the same people whom John looked up and said, You brood of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of God? No one escapes the judgment of God. There's a payday coming. It's coming. And so, this is John's testimony. Now notice the phrase, the next phrase. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? When John uses the term Jews, he is speaking of the Jews that held sway over the people, namely the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of several groups of leaders. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, and there were a few Essenes that made up the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 religious leaders that led the nation of Israel. They were the religious establishment. We see it in verse 24, as we read a moment ago. said they were sent from the Pharisees. The Pharisees seemed to have the greatest influence in the Sanhedrin. There was a great amount of fear that was generated by this group of of men. And they, the people feared them because they held such sway over them. It's very much like, it's very much like the Roman Catholics, uh, sway over the masses, uh, prior to the, uh, prior to Luther and the Reformation. When the Catholic Church dominated and people were afraid because of the things they were told. They couldn't read the Bible for themselves, and so they simply believed what the church had said, which was not true. This is very much the way the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin operated. They made the people fear them. We see it throughout the New Testament, particularly in John, where he uses the phrase, For fear of the Jews. And when it says the Jews, it means the religious leaders. John chapter 7, verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. John 9, verse 22. His parents said these things. This was the man who was healed of his blindness. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. You cannot imagine what it would have been like to have been told you are excommunicated from the synagogue or from the temple. The Jews held the temple as the most heavenly place on earth. And to go to the temple and worship was central to Jewish life. 
To be barred from the temple was the worst thing that could possibly happen. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. In chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And then chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were. Why were they all locked away? For fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be unto you. You see, there are people today who are following this same kind of tactic. We have people all around us, people in authority, telling us that certain things have to be, and they've they made people afraid. <clears throat> There's a lot of fear in the world right now. And a lot of it is generated by people in authority. And for fear of the government, many have kept silent. Many have acquiesced. But this is not the time for silence. This is a time for bold declaration of truth. John was one voice that did not remain silent. His testimony sounded loud and clear. His boldness to speak and preach is reminiscent of the disciples on the day of Pentecost when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And it takes boldness of spirit to tell people that they're sinners on their way to an eternal hell. People don't like that. It takes boldness to tell someone who is under the influence of alcoholism to that they're going to end up in eternal fire. In fact, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit. I don't know how I know, because Luke chapter 1, verse 15 says that he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Now notice the phrase, the Jews, is found 71 times in John's gospel. 71 times. It's only found 17 times in all the other three gospels. John majors on the effect that Christ had on the Jews. That tell you something? It wasn't the unbelieving world that he spoke of. Although he does on occasion. It was the religious leaders. It was the religious group. Listen, they're the ones that... 
that give the gospel the most problems. The unbeliever doesn't believe it to begin with. The religious crowd claims to believe it, but then they fight against it. And many times even disown it. And so, these people, the Jews, came to interrogate John from a standpoint of hostility. They were fearful of anyone who could possibly disrupt or depose their position or power. In fact, that's what they said about Jesus later on. If this goes on, the whole world will follow after him and we will be removed from our place. Now notice the word sent. It's a very important word. They were sent from the Pharisees. Um, This delegation came to John with the authority of the Sanhedrin behind them. We know that because the word sent is the word apostello. It's where we get our word apostle. An apostle is one that is sent forth or sent out. And one who has a commission from the one who sent him. He was a representative of the one who sent This envoy that came to John, they had the authority of the Jewish state behind them. Now, if you and I were called and said, we're going to give you a task to do, and you have the backing of the state of Minnesota behind you, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, wow, I've got some backing now? Well, that was this group. Here's the irony of all of that, is that John was sent by God, the highest commission that can be given by God, and interrogated by men sent from men. What irony. And yet John knew this. Three things are true about people sent from God. Number one, they belong to God who sent them. Number two, God commissioned them to be sent. And number three, they possess all the power and authority of the one who sent them. When you speak for Christ, you have the power of heaven behind you. That's why it convicts people so. When you speak the words of the gospel to them. John says that there were priests and Levites in this entourage. Now the priests were the intermediaries between God and men. They were in charge of the service of the temple. And each one, each priest served a two week duty in their turn. In the temple. They were considered to be the experts in religion. In fact, John's father, Zechariah, was a priest. He was of the tribe of Levi. That means that John 
was of the tribe of Levi. Luke chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, speaking of Zechariah, John's father. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, do you hear that? He was in his two-week duty. The rotation. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So he's fulfilling his priestly duties in the temple when the angel came to him. The Levites assisted the priests in the temple rituals and they made up the temple police. Yes, the temple had a police force. It was not... It was not canceled or defunded. It was always there. And the Levites were the ones that made up this temple police. Uh, In fact, uh, you can find that in Numbers chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. They were commissioned to protect Aaron and his sons as they ministered in the tabernacle. Also, Luke 22 and Acts chapter 4 and 5 references are there. Uh, And I have Numbers 3, but I'm not going to read it. Now, notice what their question to John was. It's a very simple question. Who are you? Now, that's kind of a rude way to address someone today. Uh, you know, you, you can almost hear the inflection in the words when you don't know someone. Well, who are you? As though you're somebody and they're not. That wasn't, I, I think this, it wasn't necessarily that. I think they are, they are hostile towards John because of his following. Anybody who followed in great numbers someone else other than the Sanhedrin were looked down upon. And so why were they so concerned as to who he was? Well, it was because he had become very popular and they possibly feared an uprising among the people. That's a possibility. The Jews were known for uprisings. A further alarm could have been that would have had if John could have been the Messiah. I mean, suppose he's the Messiah. What does that look like for us then? Well, what were they looking for in a Messiah? John certainly didn't fit that bill. He didn't have anything. He wasn't, he wasn't wealthy. He had no power militarily or politically. In fact, the whole... Of, Many people were wondering if John was the Messiah. Listen to Luke chapter 3 verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John had already given pretty clear information that he was not. 
But there was a great deal of confusion in the minds of the Pharisees because John didn't fit the description of the Messiah in their thinking. And so their question implied that John might consider himself to be the Messiah. So who are you? Now notice verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now that's a strange way to state this, is it not? Does that sound strange to you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. We need to understand that in first century Palestine, there were many who claimed to be the Messiah. There were many, many people. And there are, there are people today who claim to be Messiah. But these priests should have known the lineage and the works of the Messiah as noted in Scripture. Just a few. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12 and 22. Messiah would be heir to the king David's throne, 2 Samuel 7. Messiah would spend a season in Egypt and be called a Nazarene, Hosea 11, 1. Messiah would be preceded by Elijah, Malachi 4. These are some of the things the priest should have known and have been asking and looking for. But none of these things existed in John the Baptist. And so he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Strange statement, but it certainly fits the use, usage of the Greek found in this statement. The word not is the Greek way of signifying the negative with a double confession. In other words, John is, it it would be like us making a statement of confession and then making it again so that our hearers got it. So it might be better translated, he did not refuse to answer, but declared. Or he did not fail To confess, but confessed freely. In other words, John wanted to make sure that there was no mistake about his identity. So he didn't hold back answering their question. He vehemently denied that he was the Christ. Vehemently. It's interesting to note that they did not ask specifically if he was the Messiah. That was not in their question, but it's implied. John's mission and that which consumed his entire life was to make Christ known. So he anticipates their question with an emphatic denial that he was not the Messiah. William Barclay writes, John completely rejected that claim. But he rejected it with a certain hint. In the Greek, the word 
I is stressed by its position. It is as if John said, I am not the Messiah. But if you only knew, the Messiah is here. So to stress this truth, notice what John does. He uses the same words that he used in the prologue at the very beginning when he said the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He uses the same terms. Ego me. I am. I am with a negative He's saying, I wasn't, I'm not the pre-existent one. I'm not the one that was promised. The priest would have picked up on this use of the term I am, because that was the name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh. I am that I am. And so John said, I am not. The I am. But I know who is. Messiah is coming. So John is a great example of humility for us. It was the norm of his life and it should be the norm of our lives. That we are here not to make much of ourselves. Not to, not to pad our own seats. Or pockets. But to make much of Christ. The one who really and truly. Has the power. To change the world. I would ask you has he changed your life? Are you like the Pharisees whom. John said you brood of vipers who's. Who's convinced you that you're not going to be judged? I pray that we would deny ourselves and make make very much of Christ. And I pray that God will give us the grace to do so. Because our days ahead are not going to get better. And if, and if Christ does not return in our time, what will it be like for our children and our grandchildren in the, in the future that is ahead? We must cling to the truth, the objective truth of God's word. Cling to the one who never changes. Walk with him and live for him. At all costs, even if it means our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day. We pray that you would use this word that we've spoken this morning to, uh, to teach us and to uh, show us who we are and who you are. John came for one purpose, and that was to, sh- to make the way for Christ. And that's our task, Lord, as we go out into the world 
We take the gospel and we, we preach and we send the gospel forth to people. We, we witness of that which we know. And we warn them that there's a judgment coming. And they cannot escape it except through Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you'd give us that boldness, give us that desire, and may we see people convicted and turning to you in faith through all of it. We ask your blessing on these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few announcements.